Um, so today we're going to be looking at uh, membership. We're going to dip, look at this over two weeks. Today we're looking at kind of theory of like what is membership of a church, what's it for, and next week we'll look at practical, which will be like all the rules you have to follow. <laughs> sort of, no, maybe, maybe. I haven't quite figured out next week yet, but <laughs> it'll be something like that. Just not as intimidating or scary. Um, so we're going to be looking at membership, but I just thought it'd be good to do a recap. So the first week we did uh, our values. Does anyone remember one of the values we looked at? We had four. Word. 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 And I heard another one with the nest. Sacramental. Spirit. And love for the church. Thanks, Karen. Those are our four values. And then last week we looked at vision. I'm not sure I can remember the three, actually. <laughs> we wrote them down somewhere. What were our three with vision of a church? What does a church do? What's, it, what's its life consist of? Worship. Worship together. Worshiping God together. Yep. Overflowing with God's grace. Overflowing with God's grace. That's an excellent answer, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> and calling people to his throne. And calling people to his throne. So it's that, that picture, that heartbeat, that call, um, of life together. And overflowing blessing into the world and calling people to God's throne. Those kind of three aspects. I remember last week I was sort of saying, often in church life you get one of those three emphasised. But actually when all three go together, that's when you get that the amazing power, really. So we're going to look at membership this week. And um, I just wanted to do a little, uh, talk a bit about the background. I've come across in many churches, and in this church too, a sort of reticence about membership there's a sort of cultural suspicion of it does anyone recognize that do you know what i mean it's a bit kind of like well why do i have to be a member it's you know we're a family right and membership and family don't really it's not 100 percent fit is it it doesn't quite work and so what you often get is and also i think we live in a culture that's kind of anti-establishment as well so this idea that you need to have formal membership for something is also a little bit counter-cultural it goes against the grain and I have quite a lot of sympathy with that, actually. Um, that's the end of the talk. <laughs> no, no. But uh, what I want to do is um, look at membership in a positive sense. But it's helpful for you guys to understand where membership emerged historically. Historically, church membership emerged, particularly in churches like ours, which are described as congregational, for a number of reasons. Firstly... Um, during the Reformation, after the Reformation, there was a, a lot of kind of competition between churches that kind of saw one another as either having the doctrinal truth that all the other churches didn't have or the way of living out the church life that all the other churches didn't have. And so it was put forward that there's one best way of doing church. And that way was the congregational way. That is, we didn't have bishops and we didn't have elders and the congregation were the kind of final authority and they held their pastor and their leaders to account and they des- decided the direction of the church and um, they uh, made sure that doctrine was taught correctly and so on. But it's also, it was seen that that was the biblical model of how to run a church. Um, on top of that, it was also seen that congregationalism, where we have strictly defined membership as a way of enforcing church discipline, And that sounds a bit scary, and it kind of is scary, actually. Church discipline was a way of marking out who was actually a Christian and who wasn't. And what would happen was there are verses in the Bible that talk about when if a person sins and they refuse to repent, then 
you bring their sin before the whole church, and if they still re- refuse to repent, then you excommunicate them. Not as a sign that they're necessarily not saved, but as a sign that as far as the world and the church can see, they're not living as Christians, and they're definitely in danger of not being Christian. And so this excommunication happened. And so church membership was a way of saying, if you're not in membership anymore, we've removed you from membership. It was a way of saying, we think you're in grave danger of not having a real Christian faith. And that's, that's kind of what it was for. It was a way of enforcing that discipline. So, um, and it was also about democracy as well. It was about having uh, a kind of effective way of running a church, of voting on important decisions, of deciding finances, and that sort of thing. Um, for one reason or another, I think most of those things are quite problematic. Anyone jumping up and down with joy at my description of membership so far? <laughs> so doctrinally, I think it's... I think we probably, we would agree that it's fairly problematic for us to imagine that we, as a church, or even as a denomination, have a single grasp of the truth of what it means to be Christians, that, and we want to persuade all the other denominations to believe with, you know, alongside us. I think history and, and the Bible, biblical interpretation show us that there's probably not one way of running a church that is the biblical way. Um, if anyone wants to scrap with me about that later, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> I've had quite a lot of practice <laughs> lately. Um, um, but I don't think there is a biblical way of running a church, a one biblical way, I mean. You know, there are multiple biblical ways of running a church. And setting one up as the way is quite divisive, actually. And also means, again, that we're looking at other churches and saying, oh, they're not a proper church because they don't have this or, or that. Um, in terms of discipline... Has anyone ever seen anyone excommunicated? Yeah. But not, it's not a common occurrence, right? So, no, it's not. Only the minister. Only the minister. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me for the record. <laughs> um, my experience is, A, it's not very common, but B, it's just not terribly effective. Because it's... There are lots of sins and lots of complicated, intractable situations in people's lives that need to be dealt with with a much less kind of, you know, mallet to crack a uh, sledgehammer to crack a walnut approach than we don't think you're a Christian, you must leave now. <laughs> but also, if you do that in this day and age, if you say to someone, "Look, your behaviour is such and such," um, you know, we're going to remove you from the church, and they're what, what will they do? What do you think they would do? They'll just go to another church, won't they? Or they might leave the church altogether. Oh, I might have anything more to do with these Christians. But, you know, it's, it's, it's... We will come back to this. There is a biblical reason why that stuff is there, and it's important to have it there as a kind of absolute last resort. But in terms of an effective, you know, how you maintain holiness in a church, it's really not terribly effective at all, I don't think. And in terms of democracy running a church... I don't know why. <laughs> I think that has more to do with 19th century uh, political mores than it has to do with biblical precedent, to be honest with you. I think the congregation should ha- definitely have a veto. It should definitely ha- have a say in the running of a church. But I don't think democracy is the biblically mandated way of, of running a church. You know? So um, we'll come back to those things a, a little bit later. There was a, there's one aspect of membership that I do think was historically there and has been useful. 
uh, which is that it's really helpful for a pastor or a team of pastors to know who is explicitly who is under their care. For some people to say, we would like you to look after me or us or our family or whatever. And actually that still stands. I think that's really, really helpful. So, um, and that was uh, another reason why membership was there. So we're going to undermine all those things <laughs> and try and rebuild something um, that I think is uh, workable in our current situation. But to do that, I want um, us to do some discussion, and this will take up most of our, uh, our time together this evening. Um, what I've got, given you sheets of paper. There's more than one on the table this time, but you can look at one together if you want to, or you can have one yourself. Um, what I'd like you to do is look up all of these Bible references. Some of them will say very similar things. So, um, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get your Bible to read them. If, uh, if anyone needs a Bible, I'll grab you one. Um, I want you to look up all these Bible verses in your groups and see what one another's you can find in the various scripture references. Okay? okay. And as you do that, be thinking about the, that second question on the sheet. If you had to group these into four distinctive groups, what would you call them? What would you call those groups? I haven't got four groups in mind. That's just a way of helping you to remember stuff. Okay? Is that right? You can discuss. It's not like an individual exercise. You can you know, do it together. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Hope that wasn't too much like hard work. Um, 50, 59 references, I think. What's... What do you guys think? What's your overall feeling about that list? What, anything stand out to you? Feel free to shout. Love, 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 love. <laughs> That's got to be one of the groups, isn't it? Yeah. Love one another. John is especially keen. So love is definitely one of them. Um, what about... Um, does anything stand out to you in terms of like, surprise you or really kind of grab you or... Anything? Any? It's quite a lot of kissing. That's one of my groups. <laughs> kissing, no biting. That's what we wrote there. That was one of the verses. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not, we're, not, we're not launching a new cult or anything. It's fine. Be reassured. Okay, what's the kissing all about? Pardon? Chase, okay, all right. Anyone, why was kissing such a big deal? Honour. Affection. Affection. Greeting. Does anything in Romania, this might be helpful, crossing cultures, yeah. is anything remarkable about that behaviour that would surprise the world around? Um, probably, yes, because um, the situation, um, perhaps in other countries, is, you know, you'd be standoffish. Yeah. So there's, first of all, there's an intimacy, yeah. which is, in some cultures, you know, is just surprising anyway. Yeah. 
Okay. Cultural yeah, cultural. I mean, um, you know, you you kiss the ladies on both cheeks. Yeah. You kiss the men on both cheeks. Yeah. You kiss the older ladies on the hair. Okay. So. Um. So that's really that's really interesting. So just that closeness is one thing. Um. One thing that struck me from India. Um, which is very surprising to the surrounding world, is, and I think this is very much in the early church was very much the reason for it, was uh, the crossing of caste boundaries. Mm-hmm. So in India, you'd have a, a church of mixed caste from the Hindu system of converts, some of the highest caste, Brahmin, down to the lowest caste, the untouchable, the Dalits, who would embrace one another and kiss each other on the cheek. And um, so in Paul, you know, the Paul's churches, for example... Slavery, Jew or Gentile, you know, Roman, Scythian, barbarian, <laughs> all these different um, high-born, low-born, everything, and in between. But before the Lord's table, when they gathered together as a congregation, it was about equality before God, and it was a it was a physical sign, and people would have been absolutely gobsmacked that they embraced one another and kissed each other. And we don't know exactly what the kiss entailed. <laughs> Um, there's some wacky theories I was sharing with our table but, um, but yeah probably a kiss on the cheek or something like that in India they um, uh, there's a particular sign of affection in, I think it's in Kerala I don't really know because I've got limited experience but um, it seems that some people if they want, really want to show you they care they put their cheek on your cheek and then they blow out with their nostrils really hard <laughs> so like that, I'm really careful <laughs> Um, okay. Anything else strike? I mean, aside from like specifics, anything else strike you about this collection of behaviours? It's a lot of effort. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. 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 Um, just in case. <laughs> it's put me on edge. So there's a lot of that accepting, not judging. Yeah. Unity. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Unity. Humility. Mm. Harmony. Harmony. Yeah. Also rebuking, rebuking, encouragement. Service was one, wasn't it? It's like serve each other with your gifts and so on. So, but what about the overall feeling? So it takes a lot of effort, was Tom's observation. Any other kind of overall observations about this list in terms of like. And, what kind of church you'd have to be to have this stuff? Gracious. Gracious, yeah. Which seems a bit different from the world. Yeah. Yeah. Let's settle on four categories. We can, or maybe a few more. We don't have an argument. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, love. Yeah. Service. Respect, honor, yeah, yeah. It's actually, is it, honor is it's more than respect, isn't it? So it's good to, to say both those words because it is a kind of. It's not just oh, I respect your right to hold that opinion, but it's kind of, you know, I esteem you. It's, um, isn't it? it's, it's, it's the attitude. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a heart issue. Um, what did, uh, I missed a couple, I think. Uh, encourage, accept. Encourage, accept. Oh, yeah. Can I put accept under grace? Is that okay? There's a whole category, isn't there? Yeah. The sort of show grace. Submission. Good. What did these early churches, what advantage did these early churches have over us in living this out? Apart from the fact they had the Apostle Paul like visiting their church, <laughs> like writing scripture as he, as he spoke, that sort of thing. Well, some of the churches shared. We don't know if it was all the churches. We don't know. There were more family units. More family units. So they had a more cohesive society. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are bigger reasons, more fundamental reasons. See if you can think. It's a completely different cultural situation. For for all these commands were realistic. To me, they sound quite far fetched, frankly. An alien situation. Okay. So something more cohesive about them. Tom? Yeah. Okay. So they were, they were kind of together. Yep. Yep. I'm look, I am, this isn't an open question. I am looking at a specific answer, but it's good to kind of... It's quite new. Yeah. Yeah. What would happen? You're in Corinth and someone gets up and they preach and you're bored and you think, Ugh, I don't, I, I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen to these sermons anymore. I want to go somewhere more interesting. Where would you go? No. Nowhere. <laughs> what would happen if you were caught in some terrible sin, something really, really bad, and then you were confronted about it, and you said, well, "I don't care what you think. I'm not going to repent." And you got it communicated. Where would you go? Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> yeah. The, the reason why all these things were possible is there were no options. There were no alternatives. And the reason why these things are really, really hard for us is because we can just skip out whenever we feel like it. I mean, we have, we have bonds of friendship and loyalty and all those things, kind of loose social bonds. But actually, these things are really, really hard because we don't have... Um, we're not forced into that situation. I get, I, an analogy would be in um, in marriage. You know, the reason why marriage works is because it's an indissoluble bond. So I often say, and Abby won't mind me saying it, I've said the worst things I've ever said to anybody to my wife. Why? Because she, yeah, because of security. It, and I've, hopefully I've said the best things I've ever said to anyone as well. But that security gives an incredible, incredible freedom. Uh, and that's what they had. They didn't have a choice. <laughs> and so they were forced together. And so they were able to have, expect this level of relationship. So if a leader in a church said, you know, this is what we're going to have to do from now on, and people didn't like it, they had to submit. 
Well, there would have been discussion and there would have been all those things, you know, hopefully, if they're healthy, so on. But if push comes to shove and there's a basic disagreement, you can't jump out and join another church. But that's, in our church, that's what happens, sadly. And in every church, that's what happens. Um, I, lo- I, lo- I thought of this quote from C.S. Lewis, um, from the Screwtape Letters. It's quite long. I hope you don't mind me reading it out to you. Um, so it's the, it's the letter that Screwtape writes after this subject has be- just become a Christian. And he's very displeased with, um, is it Worm- Wormwood? The thing? He's very displeased with him. So he writes to him and he's, he's basically saying, you've got to basically undermine his experience of church. So he says this. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees... Just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. (laughs) You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient thanks to our father below is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, as a young Christian, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas, and sandals, and armour, and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur, this is a really good bit, on the threshold of every human endeavour. It occurs when the boy who's been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks a transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses with his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leads them to do it on their own. And there lies our opportunity. But, also, remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. So, um, the great difficulty of church is other people, isn't it? Like marriage, the great difficulty is the other person. (laughs) Or what the other person brings out in you, in my case. But there we go. (laughs) Reveals in you. Um, But the great opportunity is that as well. And... It's, it's what membership is about is we, we can't replicate the situation that was there in these early churches because there are lots of churches around, lots of denominations. Also, the other advantage they have was this 
church was purely geographical. So they had an early version of the parish system, basically, if you like. You went to the church that was near your house because you didn't have a car. You couldn't hop in a car and drive to one across town. You know, you just had to go where the local congregation was, and that was expected. So we have that option as well. So we can't re- replicate this uh, geographical system. Uh, people can skip church. What, what can we do to create this close-knit community? Well, that is what membership is about. That's what I would call covenant membership. It's about consciously entering into fellowship with a specific group of Christians. Not because you, not because you necessarily live in the same location, although I do think that is preferable. Um, not because you don't have choice, because you do. But because, for one reason or another, God has called you to fellowship with this group. Or because it's just good for you to choose one group of people to be accountable to. You can't, you can't commit in this level to every Christian on the planet. You have to circumscribe that somehow. And that's what the prime purpose of membership is. That's how we're going to view it from now on, God willing, if we could kind of create a framework. Does that make sense? I think if we just take that away from tonight, that's enough, really. That's what membership is for. And all those other reasons um, are very, very secondary, really. We, we want to create something that is a bit like a marriage. It's not indissoluble. You can change church. Like There, there may be good reasons to change a church, but it won't be because you didn't like a, you know, something that somebody said and you just left because you got the hump about it. <laughs> because part of covenant membership will be that you explicitly say you won't do that. It won't be because the leadership made a decision everybody else liked, but you didn't. Because covenant membership will be, you know, that's part of the deal. It won't be because um, you feel overlooked, but you didn't tell anybody. You know, because covenant membership will be explicitly about that promise. You know, it, it won't be any of, the, any of the whatever thousands of reasons people have for skipping church and going from one to another to another to another. There we go, that's it really. Okay. <laughs> um, what else should I say? Does that, well, I guess what I'd ask is does that sound good? Does it, any of it sound bad or any questions? <laughs> okay, that's good. So it's a means of grace. So by committing to each other into this relationship. And what we're going to do, we're going to try and produce some stuff that basically says, this is what membership is, this is what you're signing up to. Less about, you know, denomination and doctrine and democracy and all those things, and more about covenantal commitment. More about those things. But on top of that, I think it gives us some other stuff that's really cool, which I'm just going to talk through, um, which is on the back of your sheet, if if you've still got them in front of you. Um... So it's a means of grace, it sanctifies us, you know, it gives us that experience of love. It's that commitment that, you know, love is at the centre of everything we're doing. We want to be an image of God and that, that security in that community enables us to love one another truly in this incredibly optimistic, biblical fashion. Um, and that makes the kingdom of God visible. You, you, you know, we were talking about those three things last week going together. If we preach the gospel to someone and say, you want to be a Christian get saved, experience this amazing life, then coming into that fellowship of one anothering is going to be the thing that seals the deal, isn't it? When they come in and there's, they experience a human community uh, alongside their newly their fledgling faith and relationship with God, they experience a human community where they lived out this gracious, serving, honouring, forgiving relationship. 
you know, it's going to be such a massive part of, of their experience. Um, so, but, but the other benefits are um, covenantal membership, is, I've written, is better than traditional membership because in place of denomination, it enables charism and relational unity. I appreciate that's a slightly abstract sentence, but I'll explain it to you. So, in the denominationalism was basically this idea that our way of doing things and our beliefs are the way of doing things and eventually we'll persuade all the other churches that we're right and then we'll have unity, which worked really well, didn't it, for 500 years? No, it didn't really work terribly well at all. Um, you know, just every church decides that their particular doctrine and their particular way of doing it is the way and nobody's persuaded and you get thousands and thousands of different churches. However, diversity is a legitimate part of the kingdom of God. You know, unity doesn't mean that every church looks exactly the same and does exactly the same stuff. That's what I mean by charism. Actually, a body of believers in a certain place may worship God in a way that's kind of um, distinctive to them because God loves that variety. Does that make sense? So it's like, you know, we may sing more lively songs, let's say, have a slightly less liturgical service than other churches, not because one way is right and the other way is wrong, but because both of them express something of the richness and vitality of God's church. And that's okay. And we don't have to be like, our church is better than yours. We can just say, this is, our, this is who we are. This is who God's made us to be. So that's what I mean by charism. Or it may be that a church is more of a teaching church than a, you know, whatever, a serving church. I don't know. Or maybe, the two, but, you know, just to think of examples. And that's part of our, because of the unique gifts of, the, say, the leadership or the body or whatever, actually teaching and learning is part of, you know, what makes us turn us into a free church. It doesn't mean that just because we do that, every church should be doing exactly the same as us. And it, I think that gives us a security, you know, and a, a sense of individual identity without this rather poisonous and destructive kind of like, we've got to be different to everyone else because, you know, because we're right and they're wrong. Or we need a unique selling point so we can persuade everyone from Jubilee to come here. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> because, I mean, a lot of churches are engaged in that. USPs, it's, it's a marketing thing. You know, they all pitch, we're distinctive, on the, you know, to get people from other churches. It's, it's a bit rubbish, really. We, yeah, yeah, it's really it's sad. Um, so that's, that's, that's one reason, another reason covenantal membership is better. Um, because, and, and relational unity is this idea... I, I think one of the things that makes me laugh is this idea that when a person first becomes a member, often it's when they just become a Christian. Then you give them this doctrinal statement and you say, do you agree with all these things? And they go, uh-huh. <laughs> of course they do. They've just become a Christian and you're their pastor or whatever. You know, and you can talk through all those things in quite a lot of detail. But the idea that someone absorbs all those truths and then agrees with them wholeheartedly such that you then go, okay, now you can be a member... That's just not the way that people work. It's, it's an approximation of something more profound, which is actually um, something more like loyalty or uh, relational unity. I, what really happens is the pastor or an elder goes to that person and they say, as much as you understand, you agree with, do you trust us? <laughs> That's really what's happening, isn't it? Do you trust us to lead you into a healthy understanding and f- freedom of you know, you know, relationship with Christ and all those things? And... Um, to lead you in the, what God has said to the church throughout the ages. You know, what, you can't sign up to a doctrinal statement, but you can sign up to this relational unity. That's much, much stronger, I think. Does that make sense? Okay. So secondly, um, it replaces clumsy discipline 
with gracious, effective discipline. So, um, well, I'm, I, I've explained this before. If you go from you know, 0 to 100 in terms of discipline, and there's nothing in between, it's, one of two things happens. You either end up with an incredibly legalistic church where you're kicking everyone out left, right, and center, or you never exercise any discipline at all because it just seems really, really clumsy. I remember <laughs> facing a particular issue and ringing up a pastor for some advice. You know, I felt this issue needed a, a delicate touch, let's say. I rang up this guy for some advice and he was like, I'm sorry, brother, you'll have to expel them <laughs> from the fellowship. I was like, that wasn't really the answer I was looking for. <laughs> but, you know, his churches, that was the kind of approach, you know, that was kind of it, you know, and they were done and they had this very high view of the holiness of the church, but it wasn't very effective. And that church has a record. It's got a high turnover because people come, then they face a problem, some kind of compromise, and then they're out the door. Either because they feel harshly dealt with or because they have been harshly dealt with, you know. But then what do they do? They just go to another church. And it's all a bit of a, a mix-up, really. What we need is a gracious, effective discipline where, you know, we do need that bottom line. If someone is in serious sin and refuses to repent, when they're in relationship with a group of people who love them and honour them and serve them and esteem them, and that group of people comes to them and over time, you know, tries to persuade them of what's going on in their lives and, you know, all those things over time again and again does that and they refuse to repent, then you get to this bottom line and then it carries weight because there's real relationship and real friendship. You know, so it invites gracious, effective discipline. Um, Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I I, I agree with everything I was just looking at this uh, statement, you got what is membership for? Yeah. Um, the only thing that I, I, I think that we need to emphasise or to recognise is that there are terms here which need defining. Yes, of course. And they get their definition yeah. via, um, uh, via the, the Bible, yeah. via um, uh, um, doctrines, because what I'm hearing is that doctrines are bad, doctrines are divisive, doctrines are... Which they can be. Yeah, yeah. But they're also eliminating. Because you do need to answer the question, like, for example, church. What is church? Sure. How do you define church? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know is... Um, how do we church? Is that church? Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. How do, you de- how do you define these things? Group of people, yeah? a group of people, are like Christians? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what's, what makes a Christian a Christian? Sure, sure. You know, I mean, these are sometimes they they seem to be like an obvious, have an obvious thing, but actually trying to tack it down, trying to get something that's going to be useful that actually provides a definition can be a little bit tricky. Yeah. But I think because the, I just what, what I'm getting at is that. Um, the only way to answer these questions is to get it from the Bible. Yep. Because that's, that's where we've got the Word of God. This is where we get all our ideas from. You wouldn't know about Jesus, really, if it wasn't for what's written in the Bible. Yeah. You know? When we really want to know definitively what, what, what does God think about this, we jump into the Bible. So, um, so I, I, I'm thinking that, 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 that these things, that they need to be intentioned. I think they, they inform and flow to, to one another. 
But I guess what I'm thinking is that part of a, a thing about membership for me is that it helps me to know what, what am I a part of? Yeah. You know? That I'm not just a social group. Yeah. Because people have a lot of this stuff with their friends at the home. Mm-hmm. This know? is, I, I, I see what Jeff's saying is more to do with like process administration rather than the content. And content is more like teaching, you haven't put on here teaching. Mm-hmm. And I see that as being separate from what we're talking about. Yeah, a, so there's a mixture of two things. I think it's a helpful clarification, Chris. So I don't mean to say doctrine is divisive, only when it's, only when it's used in the wrong place. So if you want doctrine to be, if you like, you talked last week about the church being like the city if, uh, in, in uh, Revelation. So if the walls of the city are your doctrinal statement, that's a really ineffective way to define your boundaries. It doesn't work. And that, that's what I'm saying. However, <laughs> there, of course, is a shared life, um, not just shared practices, but, you know, laws, they say, in a city. So the doctrine serves that place in that, you know, it's what we believe and how we behave, um, how we worship together. All those things are, are a defining characteristic of the city. But, <laughs> and we have to be careful, of course. That doesn't mean that you can be a member of the city without being a Christian. And, of course, you have to define that too. So all those things, absolutely, I agree with you. If I've given the impression that doctrine isn't important, then I apologise, that wasn't my intention. But just not as the... Because the, the tradition... Why, the reason why I'm pointing to that is that I think, I think that for a lot of churches these days, doctrine isn't important. Sure. Yeah, and I think, but I think what's, what's happening in those churches is that they're intuiting something. So they have, they have a feeling for something. It's not that it's not important, it's just they kind of feel like we all know what we mean. And that's not true. But there's something in that that, that we could probably learn from a little bit, which is there is a certain commonality that we can draw on. But that's a discussion for another day, perhaps. But um, um, yeah, I, and it does have, it does have this, this knock-on effect of making it seem that doctrine is unimportant. Well, actually, it's, it's important for many, many reasons. Well, like I, say, right? I think that these things all actually flow together. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I mean, what I'm hoping out of these things is we're going to produce something that's, you know, like a, this is what membership is. And so I'm offering here a corrective, not rather than the comprehensive vision, but I certainly think that the points you're raising will form part of that you know, what we give to people. It won't just be a kind of, you know, you happen to walk through our church doors, please come and be a member, you know. Can I ask, sorry? Yeah, of course, Ezra. No, it's fine, it's okay, we've got time for discussion. If, you know, there are people in the church who have quite different ideas about, I don't know, the fall of man or the death of Christ or the nature of God, quite different views than the majority of people in the church, would that be that have an impact on membership? Yeah, I think that's um, that's an interesting question. I think basically, the confession of a church is a is is a communal property. So when you become a member, you sign up to that confession. That doesn't, however, we're not into mind control. Does that make sense? You cannot enforce people to understand and believe a set of doctrines 
because it's just that's just not how the human brain works. Yeah. It's a process. We fluctuate in our understanding and in our certainty about certain beliefs. All of us have questions from time to time. I'm a pastor of church. There are days I wake up and you know have the deepest doubts. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, we question <coughs> doctrines that sort of thing. So there's space for that. There's space for questioning, and there's space for private doubt. Um, maybe even for private belief, if you like. However, I'm not saying that's of no concern. I would, because it's the public confession of the church, if you and I disagreed, let's say, about the nature of the fall, for example, I would see it as my pastoral duty to try and persuade you of why what I believed was not only true, but good and beautiful too, and try and show you the benefits of that. However, I wouldn't come down on you like a ton of bricks or kick you out of the church because you held a private doubt about it. Um, The difficulty would come would be if you were... um, Let's say if I preach something and then you run around telling people, you know, what Jeff said on Sunday was a load of rubbish, then we'd have a problem. And it wouldn't be that big a problem because we're friends. I talk to you and you, you know, whatever, and you say, oh, I was upset or whatever. You know, sorry to pick on you, but, you know, uh, you know, we'd work it through. But if you did it again and again and again, then, then that would be an issue, right? Because we're talking about a relational model. So it's that, it's that public expression or, if you like, public rejection of... The, the, the confession of the church in a persistent and, uh, way that rejects God's leadership uh, unrepentantly. I'm being careful with what I say. <laughs> some, some way just, you'll set out something, this is what we believe. Yeah. And that's the starting point. Yeah. If people come and they have yeah, and, and we'll be talking. I mean, but yeah, but it, you know, we're not going to be getting into denominational distinctives, you know, and that's a heri- part of our heritage as a church is that we have, a, you know, we don't insist on a, uh, certain views on divisive issues, basically. So that's what we've got already. Um, so we would look at those things, and so we'd be looking at the the most universal basis of, of Christian belief. Um, you know, so we would be signing up to those things. Um, and yes, someone who... Sorry, Tom. Well, that's what you mentioned previously about love of church historic and now, so yeah. broadly speaking, we're signing up to the historic creeds of the church. Yeah, yeah that's right. But, but the thing you want to focus on is the, how we can love one another now in the community. Yeah. Where the, the theology is in the background. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, your, your point, Chris, and the discussion we're having picks up on, you know, we are talking about a tectonic shift, really, in how you do church. I mean, I'm I'm not really trying to smuggle this in. It may seem like a small thing that we're talking about, but actually, we're actually talking about something really, really big. I think really, really exciting. Um, I think it works. I think it better reflects the reality of church. I think it's biblical. I think there's historical precedent. However... You know there are big implications, but what I would, in that spirit of relationality, is you know we're not trying to do anything underhand or to undermine or to, to definitely not to, to um, divide us from the wider church or anything like. Or say like, you know, we've got it right and everyone else has got it wrong. So you know, I hope that comes across. Anyway, I hope that picks up on some of your concerns, and we can talk privately or you know, hopefully, as we actually develop some kind of document going forward, we'll address those things explicitly. Okay.
Great. Good. Um, what else to say? So very quickly, um, I'll just say those four points at the back I was talking about. It enables us to have gracious discipline. The third thing is it invites pastoral oversight. It's, you know, as a pastor, it's so, so helpful when people actually have clear expectations of what you're gonna, how you're going to pastor them and just having things in black and white. Do you know what I mean? It's like the Bible is actually quite clear. Pastors, you know, they care for your soul. You know, they have this responsibility. It's a massive burden. Like, so if they come and ask you about your, <laughs> what's going on in your life, it's not like, a, oh, who are you to ask me that? Do you know what I mean? But obviously they want to do that with grace and patience and, and so on. And when you enter, enter into membership, you're explicitly inviting that involvement. And there's more to it than that. It's also like, you know, in terms of discovering God's calling on your life and so on. Um, so having that covenant membership really invite, you know, makes it really, really clear what the expectations and duties and responsibilities of the pastor are. And the fourth thing is it in, enables true biblical leadership and accountability. So I just think there's a, you know, we want a biblical model of leadership where leaders lead and make decisions based on their skills and abilities, but they are held to account. But it's not a democracy because that's really messy. It doesn't work very well. That's in very, very brief terms. Okay. Uh, and the last thing I would say is, yeah, and this is a bit I'm sort of uncertain about, really. Um, and maybe you guys can think about it. I'm open to a bit of feedback and stuff. You know, what we have at the moment is really we have, we have a membership which is kind of functioning kind of like this old model and kind of not. It's in between. Um, and also we have a bunch of people who come to church and they join in with worship and they come to stuff and they're not members yet. And um, in one sense... We always want people to just be able to come and worship with us and just be part of church life. But we also want to be encouraging people to make that decisive step and say, actually, this one anothering that we spent ages looking at is really, really important for your Christian life, for your relationship with God. So when you're ready to make that step, we'd love to invite you into covenant membership. Does that make sense? So just this, you know, always trying to draw people into that. There we go. Is that okay? Good. Um, I feel that gives us some interesting things to do next week. Um, We've got five minutes. What should we do? Pray?